So that brings us to verse 10. The Israelites traveled on, the cam- um, traveled on and camped at Oboth. And then they traveled on from Oboth and camped in Aia, Ebriam, in the wilderness that is before Moab on the eastern side. From there they moved on and camped from the valley of Zered. And from there they moved on and camped on the other side of Arnon. And the wilderness extends from the regions of the Amorites. For Aran, Aranon, is the border of Moab between Moab and the Ammonites. Sorry, Amorites. That is why it is said to be the book of the wars of Yahweh. Now, I know once again you're like, okay, blah, 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 blah. We hear all these names all the time. But I'll say this again. These names are incredibly important. Because one, most people throughout history knew these places. Okay, most people throughout all of Israelite history reading these would be, they know these places. And so it would help root things in. The other thing is this. It helps archaeologists know where to dig and find things. Every archaeologist uses the Bible as a map to find things and dig things. What's interesting is a lot of archaeologists use the Bible as a map because they know that wherever the Bible says that thing is, that's where it is. And when they dig, they find it. And then when they find it, they start using their findings to try to prove the Bible wrong which is like totally ignorant and dumb. Like you don't use Google Maps to try to prove it wrong. Like that just doesn't work. Um, So this has helped archaeology incredibly, which then has helped us better understand the Bible significantly and validate the claims of the Bible, which has strengthened our faith and the reliability of it. So that nobody out there argues that any of this stuff is inaccurate unless he's a ding-dong on Facebook who doesn't know what he's talking about. And so um, that's part of it. The other part of this is this. All these names are significant because they root you in history. The reality is if you really wanted to, you could buy a ticket and go to Israel, and I've done it, and you can take the Bible and you can go there and you can find that place and that place and that place and that place. And what it does is it shows you that these stories are not myths and legends in the way we think of myths and legends, even though there's nothing wrong with those words. They're not fairy tales, that's probably a better word, that somebody just made up. They're literally rooted in history with historical names, historical places, historical dates, and the Bible is just littered with all this stuff. And what's really significant about it is it helps you realize these events really did happen. And that's incredibly significant because out of all the religious books in the entire world, not one of them is rooted in history like this. You go to the Quran, it's just a whole bunch of Proverbs. It's 114 chapters, and mostly Allah says this, Allah says this. Is there anything wrong with that? No, because that's the book of Proverbs, it's a book of Psalms, it's wisdom literature in general. There's nothing wrong with that kind of writing. But the fact that the entire book is that, and not one historical place or event is really in there briefly mentioned, like Jerusalem's mentioned once and Mary's mentioned a couple of times and Jesus, but not in narrative, not in story, not in that we went from here to there to there to there. Not mentioned. The Book of Mormon is not. They have a bunch of cities and places, but they don't exist. You go to America, the whole Book of Mormon takes place in America, by the way, um, during the time of the, um, the Incans and the Mayas and that kind of stuff, but none of those places exist. You can't find any of them. And they never did. You go to the Vedas. The Vedas are like some kid's dream. Okay, they're not rooted in history. The Triptych of Buddhism, 
It's not rooted in history. You go to all these religious books, and they're never rooted in history. There's no, and then, and then, and then they did this, and then they did this. There's no story. There's no narrative connecting events together. There's no this city, and this city, and this city. There's no, in the reign of Quranus, they had a census and had to go to um, Bethlehem because Caesar was king. There's none of that kind of stuff. And what's interesting is that it singles the Bible out as absolutely unique as a religious document of faith in the sense that it is rooted in history and geography with dates. And that screams reliability because not one thing in the Bible has been proven wrong yet. And I don't think it ever will be. So I don't mean that yet as in like, I mean just yet. And and there's lots of things we haven't proven right, mostly because we can't dig there because people live there now, but nothing has been proven wrong. And that's huge. And so when you read all these boring names that you can't pronounce, and I can't pronounce half of them either, don't see it as like, oh my gosh, see it as a reminder that somewhere in the Christian faith, there is somebody who knows all these cities. They've been there. They dug it. They found things that have backed this all up. And I can pick up a book and read about it or watch a YouTube video from reliable sources and see that stuff visually now today in our day and age with the internet and know this is historically accurate, reliable, and it happened. And those names should be a reminder that this thing is real, even though we don't fully connect to them like the original audience would. And so hopefully that will make them a little less wearisome as you read through. So these are the names of the places they went through. Verse 16, And from there they traveled to Bear, and that is the well where Yahweh spoke to Moses, Gather the people, and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up well, sing to it, the well which the princes dug, with the leaders the people open, and the scepters of their staffs. And from the wilderness they traveled to Ma'anah. So they sing a song, and that's where we get that spring up well. Okay? It actually is rooted in scripture. That, at least that one line is. So they sing a song, which is interesting because every other time we've seen people complaining and God gives them water and there's no thanks. Now there's no complaining. God just says, I'm going to give you water. He never even asked for it. And they respond with praise. That's a huge shift in faith with these people now. It doesn't seem that big of a deal for us because we're used to seeing a lot of praises and hymns in the Bible. But in this context, it's huge because there's a shift in attitude of the people. Now, that should also encourage you that there can be revival. Okay, as much as I know for a fact, America is going downhill. And in maybe worse ways than what you even realize. That does not mean that I have no hope. I always have hope. Okay, this is why I'm a realist and not a pessimist. A pessimist has no hope. They point to all the negatives and they say we're all screwed. A realist says this is the reality and we're very likely screwed, but I believe in the power of God and the Holy Spirit and revival and I know that all things are in God's hands. And even if things get worse, God is still good and he'll still take care of me even if I end up living in those circumstances like most of the people in the world do to this day. But this should let you know, this is why I keep telling my students, this is one of the reasons why I'm a teacher of high school kids. If I had no hope and I was truly a pessimist, I'd be living in Alaska right now, fortified. They cannot find you there. 
satellites, there's trees, everything. You go there, you stock up, nobody's finding you. That's where you go. If you get persecuted, that's the underground church. Find me there. The reality is that's a lack of hope. But the reason I'm in the classroom, feeling like they never remember anything that I teach them, is because I believe in revival. I do not believe in forced revival. I do not believe in formulas for revival. But I do believe that if you get enough people committed to Yahweh, revival can happen. And one of the things I tell my students, if in the book of Samuel, that generation was way worse than anything you've seen in Hollywood, let alone on the news in America. And yet one man, Samuel, led a revival that changed most of Israel back to God. And if one man fully committed to God can bring revival to a culture that is way worse than anything that we've ever seen on television in America, imagine what a whole group of people could do in America if they really got fired up and God was working at that moment. And so the, one of the reasons that I'm teachers, I don't have a lot of influence. I'm not, I hate politics. <laughs> I, I'm not like out there in a famous singer kind of a way. But all those kids are going to go into so many different places in the world. And they're going to have voices everywhere. And so that's my calling is I have a voice in a classroom with tons of people who will scatter to the ends of the earth. And they're going to bring revival. Okay, and so this is what you need to see here is that this is what God is doing. This generation were idiots and they were evil. I mean, how many times did God have to provide for you and you still say, you're trying to kill us. Life was better in Egypt. We've never heard anybody in the church really say that. Not on a massive level. And God's bringing revival. He's changing the hearts of the people. And so if he can do that with these people who grew up under those parents then imagine what he can do with these kids and your kids and your grandchildren and even you and us. It's never too late. I mean, Moses started following God when he was 80. And Joshua is like 80 years old when he's entering the promised land, 60 to 80, somewhere in there. Okay, and Caleb is 60 to 70, and he's conquering the, most, the strongest cities out there because he doesn't have to. God is doing it. And so Paul's called by God in his 40s, So the reality is God can bring revival at any moment. Never, ever, ever say, oh my gosh, look at America. It's the end of the world. No, it's not. Maybe it's the downfall of America as a superpower. Maybe things will be pretty bad culturally in America, but it's not the end of the world. And it's not the end of the kingdom of God. It's not the end of what he's doing. It's not the end of a revival that he can bring. If he can take the Roman Empire that were sacrificing their own children, aborting their babies and throwing them on the street corners and piling them up as visual offerings to the gods, they were prostituting themselves to people as worship to the gods, they were all pedophiles, they all believed that dominating people by force is the way you prove your manhood. If he can change that culture with the gospel and bring us to where we are now, then imagine what he can do with a culture right now that's nowhere even that far off. And so you need to put it in the perspective of human history. We have been way worse than what we are now. Way worse. That's the benefit of being a historian. But you also need to put it in the perspective of theological kingdom of God history that God has brought bigger revivals out of worse cultures with fewer people than what we have today in America. And he's doing it right now in your front of your eyes and here. 
And even though maybe America is not having a revival, you know who is having a huge revival? Tons of Muslims are coming to Christ. They're seeing dreams and visions of Jesus and converting. The Chinese are massively converting an underground church. Venezuela is starting to fire up. And Africa is having huge revivals. And maybe the revival will not start in America, but it is happening somewhere in the world right now. And right now, more people send missionaries to America than what we send to the whole entire world. And that's encouraging, too, because maybe one of us won't start the revival in America, but maybe a Chinese woman or an African woman, who are the majority Christians in the world right now, statistically speaking, will come to our country and start a revival. And so the reality is God's still at work in the entire world, even though our news only talks about us all the time and only highlights the horrific events. It's not as bad. And statistically speaking, it is more peaceful to live today in the world than it ever has been in human history. I know the media makes you think that it's not, but realistically speaking, there's less conflict, less genocide, less violation of human rights today in the world than it ever has been in the history of mankind. God is at work, and he can change people, and he's doing it right here. And I know you're tedious and thinking, oh my gosh, they're complaining again. But that being pounded in your head for the last three books is huge because now when you start seeing them praise God, you're like, oh my gosh, that really stands out. And it should be very encouraging to you that God can change anybody. And not anybody, but I think more specifically where we're beginning to lose hope. I think we believe that God can change people, but we've forgotten that God can change cultures. We don't talk much in our testimonies of God changing cultures. We mostly talk about God changing individual lives. And yes, it starts with individual lives, but God changes cultures too. And that's what we need to start reminding ourselves as, as a church. Because if we don't, we'll begin to lose hope, we'll become pessimistic, and we won't be influential anymore. And that's what God is trying to show you here as we move into the book of Joshua. It should be very encouraging. Unfortunately, when you get to the book of Judges, God will remind you, don't think that when you come to the peak of your faith that everything is good, because you can also go downhill again. And I think that's kind of where we got. America got really strong in their faith, and they got very comfortable and very kind of lazy, and we lost our influence. We're kind of experiencing the book of Judges now, but after Judges comes Samuel, who brings a revival. And that's what you need to see is that there are always rise and falls in human history when it comes to faith. So that's what we're seeing here is a change of heart. And they're praising God. Any questions? Insights? Chapter 21, 21. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Sihon and Amorites, saying, Let us pass through your land and will not turn aside into the fields or into the vineyards, nor will we drink water from any well but we will go along the king's highway until we pass our borders. But Sihon did not permit Israel to pass through their border. He gathered all of his forces together and went against Israel in the wilderness. So Sihon is an Amorite king right up in this region here. It's Amorites are... Now remember, with Moabites, Edomites, all these people, none of them are... Don't think nations like Germany and France and England. As in, they're all unified. Yes, they're kind of like England and France and Germany in the sense that they're, they are kind of all gathered together in one place and very close to each other. 
but they themselves are very tribal and very warring against each other. So if you know anything about European history, think more like right at the fall of the Roman Empire and in, in, in Europe where you have the Visticoffs and the Franks and the Anglos and the Saxons and the Germanians and the Vikings. And yes, they all kind of had a common ethnicity, but they were all fighting and hating each other and attacking, destroying each other too. So this is why God can say they went against the Edomites and they defeated them and killed them all and whatever. Well, they didn't actually the Edomites, but the Amorites. Let's get a better example. And you're, then they like a couple chapters later, they attacked the Amorites again. And then a couple years later, they attacked, and you're like, I thought God said they defeated them. They defeated one tribal, um, one, one group of people at that moment. And they did annihilate them. But remember, they're not unified like we think of Europe today unified or America and the 50 states. Um, so when they go up against there, Sihon is one king, one city state out of many city states in the Amorites because the Amorites actually go all the way up into Mesopotamia. So their territory is big and they're all controlled by all different kings. And none of them like each other either. So they're going to go up. The specific one, Sihon, is blocking their way. And he says no. But he says, I'm going to actually attack you too. Now, the Amorites were not, these Amorites were not specifically put on the list of extinction. But now that they attack God, um, Israel's people unprovoked, God's going to add them to the list. See, people can always be at a list, um, even though they might not be the original list. So God says, okay, go and attack. So, verse 24, But the Israelites defeated them in battle and took possession of his land and Aran to the Jabbok as far as the Ammonites, for the border of the Ammonites was strongly defended. So Israel took all these cities, and Israel settled in the cities of the Ammonites and Heshbon and the villages, and from Heshbon and on and on and on in these cities. And they list all these cities. Why is this important? It's important because, once again, we have another victory. Sihon is a big king, a formidable king. He is like the king of kings. Like Everybody in this region of Canaan is scared of Sihon. The Ammonites are scared of Sihon. They're all paying like a tribute tax to him. They have been living with him and oppressed by him for a long time, and Israel just comes in and wipes them out. Why? Because Yahweh is with them. And it means that now their entrance into Jericho is easy going now. Now, the other thing is this. If you didn't read ahead, you might think, wow, he skipped the entire battle. <laughs> he just kind of read, and then he went on, and he said, and then they defeat them. And you're like, that's all there is, one sentence? They went against the strongest king in the entire territory, other than Hazor, which he'll do later, and Jericho, which will come in the book of Joshua. And that's all it says, and they defeated him? That's so unmovie-like. Don't they know how to write a good... Doesn't God know how to write a good, epic Lord of the Rings script? But here's the thing. There are very rarely any epic battles in the Bible. Very rarely are there any epic battles in the Bible. Why do you have epic battles in Lord of the Rings or in Hollywood movies? Because the enemy is formidable. The only time your battle is epic is if you're somewhat evenly matched or the enemy is greater than you, yet somehow the gods or whatever are with you and you're able to like tough it out and just barely survive, but oh my goodness, it's so close. Because when the enemy is formidable, it's very hard to take them down. 
Therefore, the battle becomes epic and drawn out because it is a contest in life and death. But why are there no epic battles really in the Bible? Because when Yahweh is with them, there is no enemy that is formidable. That's the point here. One, God does not glorify in the death of his children, the image of God. When you get the Assyrians and the Egyptians, they would paint entire murals praising their defeats. They even painted murals about them beheading their enemy and skinning them alive and sticking them on poles and using them as flags as they went into the next city. But when you get to Joshua, the probably the most violent book in the entire Bible, it's not really violent. It just says he defeated the king of Azor. He defeated the king of Jericho. He defeated the king of Hebron. He defeated the king of Shechem. He defeated, that's all it is. There's no paintings or murals of deep, remembering people. There's no glory. I spilt their blood upon the ground and I waded up into my knees as I carried their heads around my waist because that's actually how some of the writings read. There's none of that because God does not glorify in the death of his people. Even though these are not the chosen people, they are his children. They are his image. And they belong to him. He's not glorifying in it. This is not something to entertain you with. This is the death of his people. And he mourns it. But the other reason is they're not formidable. They're a flea in the presence of God. There is no epic battle because there is no contest because Israel's trusting God and they just went out and defeated them. Usually the only time, and it's not an absolute 100% guarantee, but most of the time, the only time you see epic battles is when God does something really miraculous with nature and in that sense, it's not epic in that the enemy is really giving God a good go. It's just that God does something really big like the parting of the Red Sea or the ten plagues or the flood in the Kishon or when he confuses the Philistines and makes them kill each other. He spends time talking about it to remind the Israelites and us that God still controls nature and can do whatever he wants with the enemy. And he'll do that every once in a while. He'll give you a not an epic battle in close contest, but a very miraculous battle and that he flexes his muscles to remind you of who he is. But the only time that you really get epic battles is when they're not demonstrating faith in God. When you get to the beginning of Judges, it says they could not defeat the Canaanites because they had iron chariots. Sorry, the Philistines, because they had iron chariots. It talks about this battle and they ultimately get defeated. Well, you know the iron chariots have nothing to do with it. But when they saw iron chariots, they were like, oh, crap. And they stopped trusting God, either before that or during that. And because they didn't trust in God, it becomes epic because it becomes man versus man. And the Bible displays the epicness of it. And you're supposed to not be entertained and wowed, like what we typically do when we make Bible movies. You're supposed to be mourning the fact that they're not trusting God, and that's why this is not easy. And ultimately, you know they're going to lose because they're not trusting God. And so when you go through these stories, remember when God says they just defeated them, that was it. Or God confused the enemy and they killed each other and and they defeated them. You're to be reminded it's because God is with them. And if a giant army is not formidable enough for an epic battle against God, then the things that we face, the chaos of our work or family, is not epic enough to be threatening us either. It shouldn't be epic. 
Now, are there a lot more details that probably maybe last a little bit longer here and there in the Bible? Yes. But the point is they're insignificant because in the end it was always just an understood thing. They were going to win. They were going to win. And so there is no epicness because they're not formidable. And this is why Rahab is going to say, we just saw what you did to Sihon and Og, who's coming next, and we are melting in fear. The reality is because they know Sihon is formidable. But the battle that they just watched across the Jordan River front row seats from Jericho was not epic. And that scared them. So the army turned and went up north to Bashan, the king of Og. And Bashan and all of his forces marched out against them to do battle at Edri. And Yahweh said to Moses, Do not fear, for I have delivered them into all the people in his hand the people in his land into your hand. You will do to him what you did to King Sihon of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon. So they defeated Og and his sons and all the people until there were no survivors and they possessed the land. Once again, the end, done. Now later when we get to the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to learn that Sihon's coffin, where is it, Og? It's Og. Og's coffin is about 13 feet long which means he was one of those giants, one of those really tall men. So when he comes out looking like Goliath to all these average five foot three people, and yet they still went out and defeated him because of their faith. And even this 11, 12, 13 foot guy, somewhere in there, doesn't mean he had to go exactly the full length of the coffin, came down so easily because Israel trusted and God delivered. And that's so important because this is the third victory in a row we've seen because Israel is beginning to change. Israel's beginning to change. And you know after more and more events, this is going to increase your faith in God. 